right. Well, once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody and all those listening on our podcast channel as well. Uh, this evening, we're going to be studying the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to them, open up to that section. If you have your uh, iPhone or phone or iPad, that's cool too. That's actually how I do most of my Bible studies. So we're going to start at Romans chapter 3. You're going to read, uh, start off at verse 1, okay? Like we always do, let's jump right in. Let's see what Paul wants us to know. Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage, then, is there to being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So Paul starts out this chapter by asking questions. Questions, no doubt, he has wondered about himself and he's absolutely, totally been asked by other people, right? The question is, and it's a decent question, is there any advantage to being Jewish? Like believing in Jesus, that gives us a, you know, that's good, gives us a passing grade, but does being Jewish give us like that A plus? You know what I'm talking about? You know where I'm going with this? Like you completed the assignment, but you get an extra gold star at the top, right? And that's really it. Does it matter? Does it, does it help? Right? And that's not necessarily a bad question. Right? We talked about this last week. In this case, Paul does give an answer, but we need to take time to understand his response, what it means. Right? So after Paul asks that question, his response is, well, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very word of God. Right? Now, in a way, what Paul means here is not exactly what you might first expect. Notice Paul is not saying that you're more saved or Jews are more saved. They're not more special. Or when it comes time to open the pearly gates, they're at the front of the line because they're Jewish. Right? That's not what he's saying. He, didn't say, he doesn't say that. He doesn't suggest it. What he does say is, first off, the Jews were entrusted with the word of God, which means they were given what we call the Old Testament. Right? God chose them. He gave them his law, his teachings, his instructions. Then he sent prophets and judges to help interpret the law and apply it to their lives, but that none of that was without a reason. The gift of God's word, which is an amazing gift, also came with immense responsibility, which we're going to talk about in a second. But before we go into that, let's also look at why God chose the Israelites in the first place. Right? How did they get in that spot? And for that, we're going to turn quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you don't want to go there quickly, that's fine. It's on the screen above me. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God did not choose the Israelites because they were mighty, because they were technically advanced or anything like that. They had no obvious real wealth. No one really feared them, right? They didn't stand out in any particular way. God actually said they were the smallest nation. So does, do many people fear the smallest nation usually? No, you don't really give them much of a thought, right? They don't even pop up on your radar necessarily. So if it wasn't because they were mighty or well-known or anything like that, why did God choose them? Well, it's actually for two reason, reasons. First, God swore an oath to their ancestor Abraham. Because, God, because Abraham showed great faith, because Abraham trusted God, God was going to make a great nation come from his family line. Faith 
was going to be the basis for God intervening in this world, right? And we built on Abraham. And if God, if God can take a small nation through Abraham and through faith turn into a nation that the Messiah would eventually come through to save the world, God is showing he can do anything with anybody. And you're going to find that theme throughout the Old and New Testament, right? God did all that so he can show the world that all things are possible. If he had chosen, for instance, the most rich and powerful nation, it wouldn't be as impressive, right? There's a lot of stuff they could have done on their own. It wouldn't be as impressive. Also, when Deuteronomy tells us God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt with his mighty hand, God is the one that did that. God alone, not the Israelites. But once God chose the Israelites, their purpose was to be a nation of priests and prophets that would direct the world to God, right? There's always a bigger purpose. Uh, he wanted them to be a light for others. Now, unfortunately, the Israelites never completely stepped up into that role. Um, that's just the way things happen. But another thing we need to consider when thinking about how great it may have been to be an Israelite, because I know some people still like, yeah, but they got, you know, God chose them. They're the chosen people. They got the word, right? We need to understand very clearly the responsibility that went along with the word that they got. Right, especially when they disobeyed God. Once He gave them that law, like it's, it is, it's totally great that they got the Old Testament, the Word, right? But those laws came with deadly serious consequences if they disobeyed. So before before we, you know, we wish we were switched places with them. Let's read what some of those responsibilities, what the consequences were if they didn't follow the Word that God gave them. Okay, this is going to be kind of long, but I want you to bear with me. Deuteronomy twenty-eight, fifteen to twenty-nine says, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees that I'm, I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You ready? You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herd and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you go in and when you come in and curse when you go out. The Lord will send, send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought and blight and mildew, mildew which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but you will flee from them in seven. And you will be a thing of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals. And there will be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and festering sores and the itch from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope about like a blind person. You will be in success, unsuccess, excuse me, unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be pressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. Now, this goes on to verse 68. We only hit verse 29. The reason I bring this up is we sometimes get this idyllic image of what it would have been to have been an Israelite back then, a Jew in the old days, in the 
Old Testament times, like there were just blessings and manna everywhere all the time. All right? That is so far from the truth. In reality, when God gave them his word, which is valuable and it's amazing, it came with very, very serious demands, expectations. The law showed them their sin, laid the groundwork for the coming Messiah, but they were required to adhere to that. If they did not, what we just read was going to happen to them. And note, God would himself would bring that, that calamity on them for disobeying him. So here's what I like to say, the way I like to think of it. We are extremely lucky to live in the time period that we do. We don't have those hanging overhead. What do we get? We get Jesus Christ. We get forgiveness and we get salvation. So in my opinion, where I'm at, where we're at, we are blessed beyond measure. All of us live in a town where people come to vacation. It's a beautiful area. It is. The ocean's here. The weather's amazing. And we get Jesus Christ on top of that. So what I'm saying is, in the big picture, God chose who he chose. He chose the Israelites for that period in time. He chose us for this period and everyone else throughout the time periods. But he sent Jesus Christ in the world when the time was right. He put each one of us where we are to be, and then we are to grow in our faith and help spread the word. That's our calling, right? That's what we need to focus on. So let's jump back into Romans chapter 3. Let's see where Paul is going to go with his teaching. Romans 3, uh, verses 3 and 4. What, what if some were unfaithful? Will, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now, this can actually seem a little, I remember reading this uh, growing up, and this can seem a little strange at first, because it almost is like Paul's having a debate with himself. You know, that's what's going on, right? He's putting forth questions and immediately coming back with an answer. Paul is actually fairly unique in his writing style. You don't see this a whole lot. Like, if you read the Gospels, it does not do that, right? So he's different. What Paul is doing, he's using his past debates, experiences, questions, excuses he's been given for not believing, right? And he's putting those forward to save time for people who may come up with those same questions, so he's doing that, and he's immediately giving the answer. So again, he's basically restating past discussions and debates. So in verse 3 and 4, when he says, well, what if some people are unfaithful? Will that nullify God's faithfulness? And what he's referring to, likely, is the number of Jews, the people in that time, who rejected the gospel. Because, because they rejected the gospel, because they don't believe in Jesus Christ, does that mean that what God did through Jesus Christ was kind of misguided? Faulty? Didn't work? Is that what that means? Like, you know, because so many people don't believe in it, how could it be so true if there's a lot of people that don't believe in it? Right? And while that is a question, that's actually not a very good question. It's not a logical question. Right? You never judge something, whether something is true based on how many people believe in it. Amen? Okay? It's a horrible way to judge whether something is true, worthwhile, or accurate. And unfortunately, now in this particular time period, uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories going around. Has ever, anyone ever heard some real whoppers and are really surprised the number of people that believe in it? I mean, com- when there's completely contrary evidence to all that. This is what Paul is going through. It's along those same lines. He's, ex- he's experiencing people who are trying to use an argument that the more unfaithful people are and don't believe, the more God might be unfaithful and not worth believing in. Right? Because people chose to behave badly, 
Well, doesn't that mean that God is a failure and therefore maybe not that trustworthy and we don't have to worry about it? See, that's the arguments going on. That's a very real argument people were using at the time. And Paul's response is let every human be shown to be a liar and God shown to be true. This points to the fact that over time the truth will come out. We will see. Also in the final judgment, when all lies and falsehoods will be proven for what they are, false. But over time, this is what Paul's saying, over time God will be shown to be true. He's also saying, test me on that. Reach out to God. Pray to him. See that he will answer you. Right? He's adamant that we can trust God. Now, while that argument that we heard, we just read in verse 3 may have seemed odd, that's actually that's not all that's going on. There's more. Paul's going to continue with some of these claims that he's heard before. All right? And let's go to Romans 3, 5, and 8. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is in, unjust in bringing his wrath on us? Paul says, I'm only using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? And someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Yeah, that means everything you just thought it meant, right? So these may sound like outlandish arguments, but they actually were arguments people put forth. Paul even says in verse 5, I'm only using a human argument. And his first argument he puts forth is, listen, if my unrighteousness, my sin, my awfulness shows how good and righteous God is, how can I be judged wrong for my sin? If God forgives me, shows how great he is because I'm so awful, don't I get some credit? You see where that's going? So see, if my sin is the problem, aren't I kind of giving God a job? Don't I kind of get a little credit there? If I didn't look so bad, God wouldn't look so good. That's, it's almost like, listen, claiming someone, that, you know, the reason the fire department looks so good is because I started so many fires. I'm giving them a job, which is in a ridiculous argument, but that's exactly what's happening, right? And then Paul, in verse 4, uses another false argument. If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? If my lying and cheating makes God look that much more honest and true, aren't I contributing to making him look good? But that's not all. Verse 8, Paul states another terrible claim he's heard. Let us do more evil that some good may come out of it. Let's go physically hurt. And I worked in the ER for a number of years. Let's go physically hurt somebody. That way we can make doctors and nurses look really competent and good. Right? Let's go steal money from hardworking families so when they have to beg for food, the family that donates food to them looks really generous. Oh, those are good people. See, look what we're doing. This is the logic that some people are using. That's why Paul's putting it forth. That's why he's putting it out there. He's not making this up. It's one of those that you're like, oh, I would have been very nervous back then too, right? For the logic that people are using. But thankfully, Paul doesn't give in to any of that nonsense. He goes right in where it needs to be with the concept of sin and how we should understand our sin. Let's look at verse 9. Well, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? No, not at all. 
For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all alike under the power of sin. So Paul briefly touches on what he spoke about at the beginning of the chapter, but whether there's any advantage, you know, any extra credit to being a Jew. And his assessment is there's none. There's none. And you know why? We're all guilty under the law. We're all sinners. And to think that actually misses the problem, which is that we all sin. There's no benefit to cultural background, denomination, none of that. The problem is actually far deeper, and it's inherent to everybody, in that we are all sinful. He testifies to this by saying, listen, all Jews and Gentiles, every one of them is under the power of sin. No one is immune. We all are guilty. We all have the same problem that we can't fix it on our own. None of us could. If the Israelites could remove their own sin, they would have done that. The animal sacrifices, the holy temple, all that stuff, the smoke and incense, that would have worked. But did it work? No. Nothing worked to remove the original sin, the problem. And the most obvious example of this is the holy temple in Jerusalem. Right? There was always that separation between the holy of holies and everywhere else. No one was allowed to just walk in there. The high priest, one day a year. And even then, he had to do a whole lot of stuff. Nothing changed until Jesus Christ died on the cross. And then that veil, that huge curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else was torn in two from top to bottom. That's when the physical and spiritual barrier was removed. And all that happened because Jesus died on the cross. That's what addressed our sin problem. So even though we understand that now, that was not widely known back then. And to help people get in that mindset, to help them understand sin, Paul has more to say. Verses uh, 10 to 18, Romans 3, 10 to 18. As it is written, this is going to be tough to read, but it's true, there is no, and he's talking about every one of us, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is a pretty big condemnation of all people, everybody. And notice when it comes to God's grace and sin, Paul says everybody equally, right? It's not just that we sin, and look how he describes it. Look how uncomfortably descriptive he gets. No one understands, no one seeks God. All are worthless, no one does good. This particular sticks out in my mind. Our throats are graves. Our tongues practice deceit, and the poison of vipers is on our lips. With these words, Paul is describing how we deceive ourselves, how we deceive others. The very second we move away from sin and our responsibility for it and the fact that we need to repent is when we get into trouble. And this is important to understand because as a pastor, you know, as I talk to a lot of people who believe and, and don't believe, no one twists up the idea of heaven. Like we all, it's, whatever it is, is awesome, right? It's there. The part that we get twisted up is how do you get in? Hold on, I gotta look. Can I get in? The hard part for everybody is to admit our sin, the real sin. Humans have a tendency, and I'm I'm guilty of this. Don't you know? to admit the easy stuff. 
the stuff on top, right? The stuff that's not that big a deal. It's the true deep down sins, the stuff that we pray no one ever knows about. Our spouse doesn't know. We, don't, we, just, we want to just forget, right? That's the stuff we don't want to talk about. We don't want to admit to. It's, that's the stuff that's dangerous because what it does is it encourages us, because we do that, to try to seek a way to lower the bar to how do you get into heaven. How do we bring that down a little bit? I just, I, this is absolutely true. I have a lot of discussions with people at the hospital work, and I just today, and we had a conversation about getting to heaven. I said, well, see, the problem is what everybody tries to do is they go, without saying it, what's the minimum I have to do to still get in? Like, how do I just squeak over the top? You know, you're laughing, but you know there's truth there, right? No one says, what's, what's A plus, and that's what they go for. I mean, we kind of do, but it eventually comes down to, how do I just, or how do I take that bar and go down here and make it easier? How do we lower that standard, right? We try to do it with the least amount of repentance possible. It's true. Jesus spoke about this. Matthew chapter 7, 13 to 14. You've heard this before. This is a biggie. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So let's look at those words, because they lead to a really good understanding of what Jesus actually meant. For example, when Jesus spoke of the large gate, he said it was easy. It was was wide open, like it's a breeze to pass through. Like imagine... Imagine driving a large truck or even a big ship, like trying to go through something. If the passage was wide open, you don't really have to pay attention that much, do you? You could be on your phone, do one of these every once in a while. I've seen someone lay back and use their foot. Have you ever seen that on a steering wheel? You don't have to try that much. You don't have to be that committed. Not a lot of effort to still get through. Again, think of the subject matter that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a sinful life apart from him where we don't want to try to repent and remove our sin, to follow him. So a sinful life without true repentance, without following him, is a breeze. It's easy. It doesn't take a lot of work. It's what? We lower that bar. Right? But now let's look at how he describes the narrow gate because this is the one that matters. For this gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The words he uses are narrow, hard, and few people find it. Now, the ancient Greek word here for narrow is stenos. It means narrow, cramped, and difficult. This idea stands in huge contrast to this wide open, just soft, easy cruising, not paying much attention, wide gate. The path that Jesus requires is difficult. It's cramped. It's difficult. It's not easy. And his point is when people come to kind of get that idea and they start to see how difficult it's going to be, what do they do? Steer their ship this way. Let's just cruise through the easy one. They find themselves trying to look for ways to lower that bar. But it doesn't work. You know why? We don't, none of us get to decide who gets into heaven. God does that. And that standard has been there since God gave the law. 
and since we're on the subject, and this is something that I share to people, is please don't get the false idea that breezing through that easy gate, God is going to be regularly sending you warning signals or he's going to take the wheel out of your hand and force you back to this narrow one. He will let you choose your own path. It's the false idea that God will turn me around against my will. That is not true. God will let you make your own choice. Everything we need to know is in the Bible. We all have one of those. Some of us have lots of copies. And to prove my point, Jesus himself let people walk away from him. He did. He didn't force anybody to do anything. The story of the rich, the rich young ruler is a great example. When this rich young ruler ran up to Jesus, he asked, he said, he's all excited, look, what else do I need to do to get into heaven? All the commandments, I've nailed them. A plus. What else do I need to do? What did Jesus say? Give away all, sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor, then come with me. Just come with me. What did the rich young man do? He turned his back on Jesus and walked away. The key is, what did Jesus do? He let him walk away. He didn't grab his shoulders and force him around. He didn't say anything else that we know of. He just let him walk. And that would have been very tough. Imagine the disciples watching that happen. You're not even going to grab his shirt. Did you get his email address? <laughs> he let him go. He had all the information he needed. He made the choice. And then Jesus has a discussion with the disciples. It's in Mark 10, 23 to 27. This is good. And Jesus said, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, they were amazed at his words. Not like, yay, I made, woo. They were like, what? But Jesus responded again. He said to them, children, he called them children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? These are his disciples, right? And they're like, wait a second. I thought we knew the combination. Who can be saved? And Jesus looked right at him. He said, with people, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So let's look at Jesus' words because he no doubt chose them very specifically. First, he says out loud, when my a Bible it has an exclamation point, I don't know when the exclamation point was invented. I don't think it was 2,000 years ago. But that's what he meant. He's talking about how hard it is for rich people to get into heaven. And just so we're on the subject, it's not who we think is rich, it's who God thinks is rich. We live in the richest country in the world. 60, 70% of the world does not live like us. So we are all wealthy people by the world standard, okay? It's not like you have a billion dollars, okay, now you fall in that category. It's, we all are very well blessed. But Jesus, he looks at his disciples, he said, it's very hard. And that's not the end of it. How hard is it? He gives them an example that is going to blow their minds and not in a good way. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, on that subject, there are some commentators that have said, well, they think what Jesus is referring to is on the, the gate around Jerusalem. There, there was a big gate everyone went to, and then there may have been a smaller one off the side. When they had a camel went up there, they'd have to unload the camel and force the camel to get down and kind of go through. There's no evidence that that ever existed. And if everyone has ever owned a large animal, or can you imagine a horse or a cow or a camel, imagine trying to push it down and force it through a small, that is madness. No one would ever do that. So it's more than likely, almost entirely, Jesus meant exactly what he said. A needle's eye and trying to make a camel go through that. There was actually a very, at the same time period, the Persians had a very similar metaphor, except it was an elephant. Some things were so hard, it's like trying to make an elephant go through the eye of a needle. But his point was how hard it was. That's how hard it was. And the disciples then said, how can anybody get into heaven? And Jesus says, by yourselves, it's not possible. But with God, everything is possible. Now, that's a really cool statement. All right? And the entire Bible testifies to this. The fact that we are sinful, then we cannot save ourselves. All people have sinned and fall short of the, God's expectation. And the only solution is that a Savior was sent into this world to pay our debts and to wipe our sins away. But for that to happen, the requirement is that we must repent of our sin and believe, right? There's no lowering. I, w- I wish I could tell you there's a way, like, you know, a loophole, you can give me 50 bucks in here, we'll just, you know, you can get in the back door. It doesn't happen like that. There's only one way to fully repent of our sin. We must believe. But believe it or not, with all that information, there are still some people who hear that and don't take time to examine themselves, there are people that hear that, and no matter what they do, they apply the law very heavily to other people and not to themselves. It happens all the time. It happens in the Bible. It happens today. Isn't that guy terrible? Ooh, that guy. Ooh. Glad I'm not like that. Paul has experienced that as well. Let's go back to Romans chapter 3, read verse 19. Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and what? The whole world accountable to God. And just kind of like in modern day terms, Paul, what he's saying is, listen, the law, whatever it covers, whatever it says, whatever its purpose, it applies to everybody. And everybody is held to account to that law. Right? Because to have a law and not hold anybody to account is like not having a law at all. Why even have it? There's really good, it's humorous now, wasn't it, at the time. And ever, ever, anyone ever drive a car in a third world country? You will quickly learn stop signs, speed limits. Even driving on the road versus driving on the sidewalk is optional. You can kind of, there's no penalty for doing it that way. And I remember this one time, this was years ago in uh, Port-au-Prince, which is a very busy city. Um, imagine if we all had cars and we all came to the same intersection. Nobody obeys the stoplights, right or left, what side of the road, or sidewalks. We all just come to the middle, get as close as we can. We start honking and doing this. And for the next hour or two, you just inch close together. Right? And it's just, it's just madness. And then at one point, I heard some sirens. And we thought, oh, oh and I look back, and there's a police officer coming. And he did get on the sidewalk. And people are getting out of his way in cars. And he comes up, and he turns left and goes around. <laughs> Didn't do anything different than anybody else. He just had lights and stuff like that. And the point is, if you have laws and nobody enforces them, there's no point in having any of the laws to begin with. 
So Paul is saying very clearly, in an in-your-face sort of way, God is not like that. We are held account to the law, all of us. There is no no way you can say, well, everyone else was doing it, God. Listen, all these people are doing it. That doesn't work. There's no sliding by, getting off easy, finding a loophole. For, For God, sin is black and white. The law says we're guilty, period. But Paul, he's not actually done on the subject. Verse 20, he's going to give some more information, but now you're going to see he's starting to lay groundwork for where this is going. Like he's starting to crack the door, and we can see a little farther down the hall where he's leading us. So Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. See where he's setting this up? So this is good stuff. And, and you can see that Paul has been talking with people who seem dead focused on getting out of their own accountability. It's one excuse, one reason, one bad logical argument after another. So finally, Paul says, listen, no one is going to be declared righteous. No one. The law does not save you. The law simply shows you your sins. Now, there's a lot of mental acrobatics that we try to do to get out of it. But Paul says it's all junk. The only way to see the law is a mirror, 100%. It shows us who we are, that we become conscious of our sin. Now, I do want to focus on this word conscious. Because Paul, excuse me, Paul says we need to be conscious of our sin. Now, this, the Greek word, uh, I think it's up here. i got to put it up here. Uh, go to the next slide. Epinosis. It actually means fine-tuned, correct, or advanced knowledge. And that's what he's talking of, our own personal sin. So it's, it's not a basic general top kind of view, superficial understanding of our sin, Paul uses it in a much more detailed way. Here's a really good example. It's going to be kind of funny, but it's true. I'm conscious of the game of cricket. I know that there's a pitcher, and I've seen him do these, and I know there's wooden sticks that they try to knock down, and someone hits it with a weird-looking bat. I don't have any idea how they score points, but I know the game can last three to five days. I am conscious of the game, but I do not have advanced knowledge of it and even a moderate amount of knowledge. But this is, the Paul, this is the point Paul is making. Knowledge of sin is not like my knowledge of cricket. The knowledge we should have of our own sin should be fine-tuned, correct, and advanced of our own sin. Right? See, when you think about it like that, you're like, oh, that's heavy duty. Right? Like in some ways, we're experts in our own job. Whatever we've been doing for a long time, you guys know stuff about what you do for a living more than I do, vice versa. The way you are no detailed, fine-tuned, advanced knowledge about your specific profession is how you should be about your own personal sin. Not other people's sin, yours. That's what he means to be conscious of it. And it's only once, once we get to that point that we have that kind of knowledge of our own sin that we can really, truly begin to repent. Because here's a good question. Think about it like this. If you try to repent without a deep, advanced knowledge of your own sin, what exactly are you repenting of? Probably like what we all tend to do. I've done before. The easy, topical stuff that's not that big a deal. Right? Not the heavy, advanced stuff. The stuff that doesn't go too deep. But that's not where Paul's going. You see, he truly wants everybody to be saved, to get it deep down, to change our ways, to become something new, to truly be molded into Jesus Christ's image. Because again, without true knowledge of your own sin, how can you truly repent? 
That's a good question. So someone asked me once, well then, if I don't do that, am I saved? I don't, I don't know. But that's not a good area to be in. The good area to be in is yes, do the work. Repent of your sin. Understand everything. Because that's the area. Because that matters. So where does that leave us? I know, I'm just kind of bumming everybody out, right? This is Paul who wrote this, not me. I'm just a little... So what do we do? Where does that leave us? First, we should do what Paul's telling us. We should know our sin and we should repent of it. We really should. Think back on all the stuff you've done. Go way back. You know why? Because all of it matters. Then repent of it. If it's possible, make right if you've wronged someone. Do that. Then we start to ask for forgiveness. Ask Jesus to come into our life. Ask him to wash away our sins. Because that, when you really get into that place where you really understand how sinful you are, then you're going to realize what Jesus did for you is that much more special. See, and that's what I don't want anybody to miss. What Jesus did is not cool. What he did is like, I don't deserve what he did. I'm a pastor. I still don't deserve it. But I tell you, I am so thankful. It matters. And that's why I also want other people to know. That's why you guys, that's what Paul wants. So all of us pastors, our elders, we want you to understand that's where Paul's trying to get us to. Because that's, that's where the gold is. Because that's when we really change, become like Jesus. And that's, the mess. that's also what we want the outside world to see. We want people to see Jesus in us. Right? And that's where the magic happens. Now, to help anyone on that path, if anyone here has not accepted Jesus into your life, in a few minutes, we're going to give you that opportunity. All you have to do is repeat what I say when we pray. You can do it right in your seat. There's no test. No one's going to ask you. Whatever you say is between you and God. But also in that prayer, we're going to pray that God forgives each one of us for all of our sins. Everything. The ones we know about, the sins we have forgotten about, the sins we don't want to remember. It doesn't matter. We're going to pray for courage, for God to use us, and to expand the kingdom that started so long ago. Okay? Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Father, I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. And this evening, I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I ask him to forgive me to save me, to guide my steps for the rest of my life. But Father, today, as a church, we ask that you forgive. Forgive us of all of our sins. Help us to see, help us to understand, help us to have that advanced knowledge of all the ways that we've sinned and fallen short of your expectations. Show us the sins we know about and the ones that we have forgotten. We truly want to do better and we want to be cleansed from all our sins. It is only in that place where we can be made new and remade in your son's image. Father, we also pray for strength to endure all trials. May everything that we go through, both good and bad, may it strengthen our faith, our resolve, and may we always lean on you, no matter what. Father, today we also recommit ourselves to you. So many times in life we get busy, we get pulled away, we fall out of sync with you. But tonight, we make that choice to recommit to you. It's our choice, and we choose you. 
And Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you. It's only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope. Father, we pray that as our faith grows, you will use each one of us in the way that you have chosen to expand your kingdom. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given for each one of us. We thank you for the church. Most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name, we ask all these things. Amen. 